Welcome. This is Dr. Michio Kaku, professor of theoretical physics at the City College and the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, and this is Exploration. Every week on Exploration, we discuss the fascinating world of science and its impact on society. Well, today we have two very special guests lined up for you. In the first half hour, we're going to bring on Dana McKenzie, who has written a book about the origin of the moon. That's right, the moon. You know, every civilization has folklores about the origin of the universe, the origin of the sun, the moon. But science also weighs in on these questions because science is converging on a unified theory of where the moon came from. And you may be surprised. And in the second half hour of exploration, we're going to bring on our second guest, Professor Gregory Stock of UCLA, author of a controversial book called Redesigning Humans. That's right, what happens in the future, not the far future, but in the coming decades, when we have the ability to manipulate the genetic heritage of the human race. What does it mean if we can have designer children, if parents can begin to choose the genetic characteristics of their kids? And then the question is, who decides? Who decides how far to push this technique that is being perfected in the laboratories. Now, to be sure, we don't have it yet. However, in the coming decades, we can foresee a time when parents, over-anxious parents perhaps, will want to perhaps genetically alter their genetic heritage, first of all, to eliminate genetic diseases, which have haunted us since the origin of time, but perhaps even beyond that, to enhance ourselves to make ourselves perhaps more outgoing, more handsome, uh, more sociable. Who knows? How far will it go? So once again, in our first half hour, we're going to talk about the origin of the moon. What does science say about the latest theories concerning the moon? And in the second half hour, we're going to bring on our special guest talking about redesigning humans. How far should we go to redesign the human race? Now I'd like to bring on our special guest today. We're very delighted to have with us Dr. Dana McKenzie. He's a mathematician and now a science writer, and he got intrigued by the whole question of the moon. Where did the moon come from? Why do we need a moon? Where is the moon going? The ancients speculated about the origin of the moon, and now we have hard scientific data about the origin of our nearest celestial neighbor. And today we're going to be talking about his latest book. It's called The Big Splat. That's the theory that says that billions of years ago, an asteroid about the size of Mars plowed into the planet Earth and out of the debris, out of the debris, crystallized our moon. So once again, our special guest today is Dana McKenzie, author of the book The Big Splat. And today we are talking about the origin of the moon. How did right. you first get interested in the so-called Big Splat Theory? Yeah. Okay. So, well, 
the way I got interested in this was that I went to a conference on the Earth and the Moon, in, on the origin of the Earth and Moon, in Monterey in 1998. Actually, I covered this conference for Science Magazine, which I write for pretty often. And uh, I went to this conference and was very struck by the fact that everybody there was talking about something called the giant impact theory. Um, the giant impact theory is what moon scientists actually call it. The big splat is what I call it in my book because I needed a fancier title. Now, you can't write a book called The Giant Impact. It sounds boring, but The Big Splat sounds more exciting. So, um, But if you actually go up to a moon scientist and talk about it, The Giant Impact is what, is what they call it. Anyway, so every you know, there are about 100 moon scientists and planetary scientists at this meeting. They all talk about The Giant Impact Theory as if everybody knows what The Giant Impact Theory is. You know, of course you know what that is. That's, that's just you know, that's the way the moon formed, and, and there's really not that much debate about it. And this stunned me because I had never heard of it, um, even though I consider myself a fairly scientifically literate person. And, you know, as a science journalist, it's kind of my job to know about about things. And, and uh, I hadn't heard about this theory. And so, uh, so right away, that kind of raised my antennas a little bit. And I said, wow, you know, somehow they haven't gotten the message out there about this theory. Now, here's this big question that we went to, find, went to the moon to find out. You know, where, where did the moon come from? That was one of the big scientific objectives of the Apollo mission. And uh, here they're saying, we found out the answer, and yet they haven't managed to tell the public what they found out. Okay, well, let's get right into that now. Now, everyone has a theory of the moon. We see it practically every night. Uh, right. The ancients had theories of the moon. So talk to us a little bit about how the ancients viewed the moon, uh, starting per perhaps uh, the Greeks and other ancient societies. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, it's, it's an interesting question because the ancients, a lot of them didn't know what to make of the moon. Uh, some people thought it was some, something that was in, the, in our atmosphere. You know, other people thought it was a hole in the cosmos that uh, basically... Uh, you could is this hole that you can look through and, and see you know, the heavens beyond or something like that. Um, there, were, there were many theories. Um, uh, I think the the two two uh, very important theories to to know about uh, are first of all the Aristotelian theory, uh, which dominated the Western viewpoint for literally fifteen hundred years or so, um, which viewed the heavens as these perfect, incorruptible things that, that the planets and the stars all, you know, lived out there and, and, uh, and as I said, we're, we're, they were, they're considered to be some, made of some different substance, something they, they call it the quintessence. And, uh, and you had this so, and one of, one of the key things about this theory is that the Earth is at the center of the universe in this theory and that all these other things are sort of ranged around the Earth. And the Earth is sort of viewed as is where all the um, bad things are, you know, the, the corruptible things, things that decay and die and stuff like that. And the heavens are out there and perfect. And so this, uh, as I said, this dominated Western thought for, for centuries. Uh, people thought that the Earth was at the center of the universe. What's interesting is that that was not the only theory, even in the era of the ancient Greeks. Uh, there were some people, there's a, a Greek astronomer named Aristarchus, who actually posited the idea that the sun was at the center of the universe and, and uh, actually came up with the idea very much like what we now call the Copernican system. Uh, and so 
so actually, and, and in that theory, when you know, he, he actually saw you know, the sun as being the center of the universe and, and the planets as being Earth-like bodies that orbited around the sun. And so in this theory, the, the moon was not something that was not so different from the Earth. It was just a piece of rock up there in the sky. And, uh, of course, nowadays, that's what we know it is. So, so they were right. Uh, at the time of the Greeks, you know, no one knew. There was no way to find out. What's interesting is that there was this very vigorous debate during the time of the ancient Greeks. Um, but the sort of the, the prestige and power of, of Aristotle eventually sort of turned the debate into a, a very one-sided argument. You know, it seems fascinating to me that they, the Greeks actually calculated the distance between the Earth to the moon. Yes, they, they did a number of remarkable things. They could calculate the radius of the Earth. Um, and they worked out the distance from the, from the Earth to the Moon. Um, I believe they had some idea, perhaps, of the distance to the Earth from the Earth to the Sun, although I, I, don't, I don't know how accurate they were on that. Um, it's absolutely amazing to me that the Greeks could do those two calculations, the size of the Earth and the distance to the Moon, mm-hmm. and they did it using just uh, basically string and a protractor, uh, by looking at shadows around the ancient world at noontime at a certain time of the year, right. not all shadows are the same. Therefore, the Earth must be curved, and they could actually calculate the distance, uh, the radius of the Earth by looking at the, the different shadows of yeah, the planet Earth. It's actually very mathematical. It's, yeah. it's basic trigonometry. And then looking at eclipses, uh, comparing the solar eclipse to the lunar eclipse, and the fact that the two are different. Uh, but both of them involve the moon. Uh, they could then calculate right. the distance between the Earth and the moon. That's right. Again, it's it's sort of trigonometry, and we're kind of lucky, actually, that the the moon is just at the right distance. Where during a a total eclipse, it just you know it just eclipses the sun. It's you know not not too big and not too small, but just right. Now let's talk about um, let's talk about Galileo and the telescope. With the um, proliferation of the telescope, we could see craters on the moon. And how did that influence our thinking about the oceans of the moon? When we look at maps of the moon, we see mare this, mare this, yes. mare as in mariner, yeah. uh, as in oceans. Yeah. So how did, the, how did the telescope affect things? Yeah, well, the, the 1600s were a, a very interesting time. Uh, so you had the telescope being invented about 1609, and uh, Galileo got his, heard about it and actually built his own telescope, which was, was uh, the best telescope. Of its, of its day, like 1610, 1611, and so forth. And the first thing he looked at was the moon, because that's the most obvious thing to look at in, in the night sky. And uh, if, if your listeners haven't ever done this, you really should do it. Look at the moon through a telescope, because it just looks completely different. When you look at the moon with the naked eye, there's basically, it looks kind of flat. And there, there's, there's technical reasons for this. Um, but when you look at it through a, a telescope, you can really see the curvature, and, and immediately you can just tell this is not, you know, a flat hole in the sky, you know, or it's not, you know, some, some celestial sphere orbiting up, up there like, like Aristotle said. You can tell that it's a world. And so, um, so when people look through the telescopes, they can see this. And, of course, the first assumption was it's a world like ours. And so you see these, as you said, the mares, which is the Latin word for sea, and the first theory that people had was that these were actual bodies of water, and so so they named them that. And in fact, there was a big race in the 1600s to to name all the features on the moon, 
and some people name them after, you know, had one naming scheme, you know, people, uh, there's sort of a Catholic church naming scheme, and then there's sort of a uh, uh, English naming scheme, and, and eventually they settled on uh, naming features in, in Latin, so that's why we have things like Barre Tranquillitatis, which is the Sea of Tranquility. That's where the first moon landing was. And these mares are actually, as I understand, lava flows, uh, right. volcanoes so that for, covered up. Uh, yeah, so it, it became evident to scientists fairly early on that they really were not seas of water. Um, but, of course, they didn't know what they were exactly. Uh, they're just, for some reason, darker than the, the rest of the moon, the moon rocks. And so, so we didn't really know for sure what they were until we went to the moon uh, on the Apollo mission. And the first mission was to, uh, was to one of these. Yeah, well, we'll get into that yeah. in a minute. Uh, but tell us a little bit about Kepler and also uh, the son of Charles Darwin. They also had sure. theories about the moon. Yeah. Well, uh, Kepler was an interesting uh, person to write about. You know, uh, one of the fun things about writing a book is is that it evolves sometimes in ways you hadn't expected. Um, I've always been a big fan of Galileo, and so I had sort of expected to to write a big chapter about Galileo and how important his discoveries were for the moon and so forth. And what I found out was, well, really, Galileo didn't have that much to say about the moon. He wrote this, this one fabulous little pamphlet about it and, and then went on to other things. He got more interested in the moons of, of Jupiter, and he, of course, was interested in, in the whole, this, this whole solar system and, and so forth. So he didn't really actually say that much about the moon. But Kepler sort of was haunted by the moon his whole life, and he actually wrote the, uh, the, what some people consider the first work of science fiction, which is called Somnium, the dream. And, and this dream is actually a dream about a voyage to the moon. And what's interesting about this, ostensibly science fiction, is that it actually has a huge amount of science facts behind it. And it's, it's just a marvelous compendium of what was known scientifically about the moon and so forth. And of course, Kepler was very much a proponent of, of the idea that the, the moon is, a, is, a, is another world. And he envisioned what it would like, be like to be on this other world. And for example, well, he came up with all sorts of interesting facts. But one thing that he realized, which I'm not sure if most people realize now, is that when you, if you're on the moon, you don't see the Earth rise and set. The Earth stays in the same spot in the sky. And that's because the Earth is tidally locked to, to the to the or sorry the Moon is tidally locked to the Earth, so it doesn't it doesn't rotate around the Earth. So you always see the Earth in the same point in the sky. Kepler figured this out. I don't think anyone knew that before. And um, so actually, when the Apollo astronauts went to the Moon, the Apollo eight astronauts orbited the Moon and took this wonderful picture of Earth rise above the Moon. And I think people you know probably thought, thought of that as being just like sunrise. Well, actually. The reason they saw Earth rise was because they were going around the moon, and they come around the backside of the moon, and they see the Earth on the other side. But actually, the Earth doesn't rise over the moon. The Earth stays there. In fact, uh, when we talk about the man in the moon, or people in Asia talk about the rabbit in the moon, mm -hmm. it's right. the same devil moon. Uh, yeah. We never see uh, the backside right. of the moon. Yeah, you don't uh, see the backside. Yeah, because of the fact that one side is locked, locked yeah. onto the planet Earth because right. of something called tidal forces. That's right. And that is where we get to start to talk about Charles Darwin's son. Uh, and here's another one of these sort of unexpected heroes of my book. I mean, everybody knows about Charles Darwin, but very few people nowadays realize that he was actually the father of a, of a tremendous 
marvelous scientific family that his son, George Darwin, uh, was the greatest expert on tides in, in the late 1800s. And he also had a son, Francis Darwin, who was a, a, well, a very noted naturalist in, in his time. Both of these sons were made knights of the British Empire, just like Charles Darwin was. And in fact, around the turn of the century, George Darwin was one of the most famous scientists in the world. Um, now, people have sort of forgotten about him. But uh, one of the things I hopefully have done in my book is, is kind of bring him back into the limelight a little bit. He was the first person to propose a scientifically based theory for the origin of the moon. And his, because he was such an expert on tides, his theory was actually based on tidal motion. But what he realized is that uh, there are tides on the moon very much as there are on the Earth. And in fact, the Earth has a much stronger tidal effect on the moon than the moon does on the Earth. And so, in fact, the Earth has, has locked the moon into position. It, it's not able to, to rotate uh, you know, sort of independently the way, the way the Earth does. And it creates a bulge in the moon, uh, just the same way that the moon creates a bulge in the Earth. Now, uh, what, what, what George Darwin realized was that the, uh, the bulge, the tidal bulge in the Earth, because the Earth is not locked in the moon, the Earth is rotating, and the Earth rotates faster about its axis than the moon, the moon rotates about the Earth. So when the Earth rotates, its tidal bulge is always getting ahead of the moon, okay, because the Earth's rotation is faster. And so this, this bulge is actually pulling the moon forward, always tugging the moon forward in its orbit. And uh, so you might think this would make the moon go faster and faster, but that's not actually what happens. When you, you learn a little bit of Newtonian mechanics, what actually happens when you tug a planet faster in its orbit is it moves out. Okay, so, uh, so the moon is gradually moving away from the Earth. And uh, George Darwin named this effect tidal friction. And he based this entirely on, on pure physics, on the pure physics of mathematics. And it's very interesting because you know, he had no way of directly verifying this. But one of the things that the Apollo astronauts did when they went to the moon, the first mission, is put a reflector on the moon so you could shine a laser beam at this reflector and look at the way, you know, shine it to the reflector, have it bounce back to the Earth, and actually directly measure how quickly is the moon moving away from the Earth. Okay. Uh, let's say a few things about Newtonian physics sure. now, okay? Uh, Newton in the 1600s came out with the definitive laws of gravity, right. which binds the solar system together. And he also calculated the allowed trajectories, including circles, ellipses, hyperbolas, parabolas. But there are no spirals in free space, in empty space with no friction. Sure. Spirals are not allowed as a solution of Newton's laws of motion. Therefore, capture was not possible. It's simply physically, mathematically, scientifically not possible for a single Earth in outer space to capture a solitary moon without friction, like air friction, and there's no air in outer space. Right. So we can actually use Newton's laws of motion to rule out one of the main theories yeah. of the origin of the moon. Well, you would think so. Uh, but nevertheless, the capture theory was one of the three main theories going into the Apollo mission. Um, right, because people so, didn't understand right. the laws of physics. Yeah. Well, so let's, so let's actually, let me just step back for one second and say that the, the first theory was George Darwin's theory, which was called the fission theory. And... Um, so where that came from, so basically his idea of where the moon came from was that it just spun off the Earth. Okay, the Earth was spinning much more rapidly, and the moon, moon flew off the Earth. And the way he arrives at this theory was basically by running the tri tidal friction scenario in reverse. 
So basically, he saw that the moon is receding from the Earth now, and he said, okay, so I run the movie in reverse. It had to be moving towards the Earth back in the, you know, if we run the movie in reverse. And so eventually, when you go back to the beginning, you have the moon actually at the Earth. So, so that's where he got this, this so-called fission theory. So that was the first scientifically-based theory of the moon, moon's origin. The second one, historically to be proposed, was the capture theory. And as you say, the capture theory, a priori, if you know Newtonian physics, seems to be impossible. Okay? Now, uh, there's, a cap there's a caveat you put in there, though, which is that without friction, you cannot have a spiral orbit. But if you put in some friction, then you could have a capture. And so uh, it's, uh, this is very implausible, admittedly, but um, one of the first proponents of the capture theory suggested that maybe the, uh, the interstellar medium actually has some kind of resisting, uh, uh, resisting stuff in it. That he, uh, Actually, the, the guy who proposed this was a very colorful guy named Thomas Jefferson Jackson C., uh, an uh, American, uh, very self-promoting, self-aggrandizing guy, uh, who was one of the first American astronomers to get a PhD in Europe. Um, so uh, he was he was a somewhat well-respected guy in his time, but he had some really wild ideas. And uh, one of these ideas was was the idea that there was something out there in the interstellar, interstellar medium that resisted motion and then enabled the moon to be captured by the Earth. Um, very quickly, that theory became less respectable scientifically. Um, but still, there were, were people who argued for some version of, of the capture where maybe you had uh, a lot of debris around the Earth early in the formation of the system, and that debris could slow something down enough to be captured. Okay. Well, now let's get to the Apollo space program, because you've sure. been alluding to it. Yeah. What did the Apollo space program show in terms of moon rocks? What are moon rocks made of? Right. Okay. Well, so uh, what's interesting about moon rocks is they're a lot like Earth rocks, but there are some subtle differences. Um, so... One of the things, for example, one of the ways they're a lot like earth rocks is they looked at things like isotope ratios. And um, so, for example, they look at different isotopes, meaning different weights of the various elements. Uh, so, for example, you can look at oxygen, and there's a, a version of oxygen that's very common, and then there's some heavier version. And these ratios in moon rocks look identical to earth rocks. So, so this is a, a hint that, that the moon, wherever it formed, probably formed somewhere similar in the solar system to where the Earth is. On the other hand, there are some differences. In moon rocks, you don't see what are called volatile elements. These are elements that have low boiling points. And um, so, uh, so one, this posed a problem for, for some of the theories of the moon. Okay, this the theory that the moon, called co-accretion theory, the theory that the moon just sort of grew up in the same part of the solar system that the Earth did and accreted the same way as Earth did, has a problem with it because it, that doesn't explain why you have this lack of volatile elements. And third, another huge difference between the moon and the Earth is that the Earth has almost no core to it. In fact, the moon has no core to it. Yeah, yeah. it has you said the Earth. Yeah. yeah, so the Earth has a huge core. The mm -hmm. Earth has the biggest core of any planet other than Mercury. Iron but core. The moon, mm -hmm. Yes, and this core is made of iron and, and nickel too and some heavy elements, but mostly iron. 
uh, whereas the moon has a very small core. It's been estimated now at about 2% of the weight of the moon, whereas the Earth's core is about 33% of its rate. So, so again, if you have the Earth and moon growing up in the same part of the solar system, why does one of them get all the iron and the other gets almost none? It makes no sense. So, so basically, uh, what you had is, is this strange situation where there are three theories for the moon, and none of them really made sense. You know, you have this capture theory that makes very little sense uh, because of Newtonian physics. You have to really stretch to, to get you know, some way to capture the Earth. You have this co-accretion theory, which made sense before we went to the moon, but now all of a sudden we see these differences between the moon rocks and the Earth rocks. And you have George Darwin's fission theory, which also had, had troubles with it on physical grounds. So, so you had three theories of the moon, and none of them seemed to make sense. Okay, and now so let's that's where you get a fourth theory. Okay, now let's talk about the Big Splat theory. Uh, what are some of the convincing reasons for believing in the Big Splat? Right. Well, so there's uh, basically the Big Splat uh, take, accounts for some of these things that were discovered in the Apollo program. Um, so, uh, first of all, this uh, volatile depletion, depletion that I talked about, the lack of volatile elements. Well, if you have a, a moon forming by a giant impact, catastrophic impact between Earth and another planet, that will blow off a lot of stuff into orbit and some stuff out into space. And what gets blown off preferentially into space is the stuff that has low boiling part, low boiling point. So, so the big splat accounts very nicely for why you don't see volatiles in moon rocks. Second thing, the iron core. Okay, where did the moon's iron core go? Well, the, the big splat actually turns out to explain this very nicely, that when you have this, this collision, the, the planet that runs into the Earth is basically destroyed. It's, it's, it's completely destroyed. Some of it's vaporized. A lot of it is liquefied. And the heavier elements tend to go into the Earth's core. It's the lighter stuff that tends to go into orbit. So again, uh, the big splat explains the difference in the cores very nicely, and you can actually do computer simulations that, that show it works this way. And then one other piece of evidence, uh, which was unknown before the Apollo mission, uh, one of the probably the biggest scientific discovery of the Apollo missions was the discovery that the moon once was covered by an ocean of magma, um, that's molten rock, about 600 kilometers deep. Um, and so, so we have evidence, and I could talk about what the evidence is uh, if you want, uh, but we have this uh, direct evidence from the moon rocks that, that the moon surface was once molten. What provided the energy to melt the moon? Okay. Again, the, the, uh, the giant impact theory explains this very nicely because you have this incredibly energetic collision. You have all this stuff being blown into orbit. You have the Earth with a, a ring of debris around it for maybe a year, maybe 100 years, just like Saturn. But this debris coalesces very rapidly and forms a moon. And this rapid coalescence is a very violent process. You've got stuff falling into this, to this growing moon and basically melting the rocks. You know, the rocks hit each other, they get heat, heated up, heated up, and eventually the outer layer melts. So again, the big splat accounts for this molten layer, this magma ocean, where none of the other theories really do. So, so there's no one thing that says we had this giant impact, but there's a series of, of, of things that, you know, bit by bit add up to making this seem more plausible.
Well, I'm afraid that's it for the first part of Exploration. Once again, our special guest has been Dana McKenzie, author of the book The Big Splat about the origin of the moon. But stay tuned for the second half of Exploration when we talk about a very controversial topic with Dr. Gregory Stock of UCLA, and that is the question of should we redesign the human race? And if you want a copy of today's program, call the Pacifica Program Service at 1-800-735-0230. And be sure to dial into my website. It's www.mkaku.org, M-K-A-K-U.org. And so far, we log about a million pages per month on that website. Welcome. Once again, this is Dr. Michio Kaku, Professor of Theoretical Physics at the City College and the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, introducing the second half of exploration. In the first half of exploration, we launched into outer space and took a journey to the moon and answered the question, where did the moon come from, with Dana McKenzie, author of the book, The Big Splat. And then in the second half of exploration, we're going to talk about exploring new territory, very controversial territory concerning how far we want to push genetic engineering. Do we want to redesign the human race? Well, with us today is Dr. Gregory Stock of UCLA, who will talk to us about the pros and cons and what the vision is for those people who want to tinker with our genetic heritage. So once again, our special guest is Dr. Gregory Stock of UCLA, and the topic is Redesigning Humans. And now I'd like to introduce our special guests for today. We're very delighted to have with us Professor Gregory Stock of the University of California at Los Angeles, where he's the director of the program on medicine, technology, and society. And he's the author of a very controversial book called Redesigning Humans. That's right, Redesigning Humans, Choosing Our Genes, Changing Our Future. In other words, we're not talking about something that's going to happen anytime soon but perhaps 50 years, perhaps 100 years into the future, who knows for sure, we may have the ability to tinker with our genetic heritage. And then the question is, is that a good thing? Is it a good thing if every parent can begin to choose the characteristics of their children? What about the future of the human race? What about medicine? What about ethics? These are the questions we're going to be exploring with Dr. Gregory Stock of UCLA, author of the book, Redesigning Humans.
Okay, the first question for you, Dr. Stock, is how did you first get interested as a youth in biology and medicine? Uh, well, I've sort of been interested in the issues of life for as long as I can remember, and I think the uh, epiphany that I had being as a uh, uh, graduate student uh, just about to get my doctorate in uh, molecular biology was that suddenly I was walking on campus and realized that I didn't really know the difference between uh, an oak tree and an elm tree. Uh, and I realized I was at too much of a molecular level, so I thought it would be uh, worthwhile for me to step back a little bit and uh, look at more systems biology. Okay. And why did you specifically get interested in the whole question of genes, genetic modification, and genetic enhancement? Well, I was uh, developing some ideas related to sort of uh, uh, levels of complexity in life and that there are multiple very distinct levels of complexity, the, the lowest being that of bacteria, which is just essentially a little bag of biochemicals and uh, no internal structure or anything. And then animal cells, or eukaryotes, are a million times the volume. They have all sorts of compartments. They are much, much more complex. And it turns out that the origins of some of those components were, in fact, bacteria themselves which came together symbiotically and then formed really uh, complex uh, organizational structures. And then this happened again with the formation of multicellular life, all of the uh, complex multicellular organisms, the animals and plants that are, are filling up the environment that we see, uh, uh, that we can observe around us. And now there's yet another step that is occurring where led by human activity and our fusion with telecommunication technologies and all sorts of things that are drawing us together as a, a very integrated sort of a superorganism, the implications of that are really profound for not just human society, which is actually uh, an organism and can be seen very clearly as that uh, if you look into it in detail. And that's the subject of a book I wrote called The the fusion of humans and machines into a global superorganism. And I was interested in what the biggest implication of that was. And things like space travel and such are, are some of the products of that uh, collaboration. But the most interesting for us, I think, is the way these technologies will then be turned back upon ourselves and reshape the, our own biology. And so that's how I really got interested in the sort of genomics and the various ways in which these, uh, you know, extraordinarily precise and powerful technologies were uh, beginning to be, to have the possibility of reshaping human life itself. Okay, and speaking about reshaping human life, some people get a little bit squeamish when they think about that. They remember what happened with the Nazis and eugenics. However, isn't it true that historically humans have, in fact, been enhancing other species, like dogs. Haven't we been breeding dogs for thousands of years? And what about plants as well? Uh, yes, it's definite that there is not, uh, this is not something new. It's just that the tools that are being brought to bear upon biology are so much more sophisticated. So uh, I think that canine breeding is, is, a, is an excellent example and is actually going to serve as sort of a pilot project for our own self-modification in that here we're using the most kind of primitive tools of, of selection and, and breeding. 
and look at the diversity that exists in the canine realm. I mean, it's truly extraordinary. And so to think that when we're uh, sort of exerting control over our own reproductive uh, possibilities, essentially through in vitro fertilization, through uh, genetic screening, all of these sorts of things, that there won't be significant implications for us as a species, as individuals, as culture, as cultures, uh, I think is very much putting one's head in the sand just because of all these previous examples. Well, let's look at the pros and cons. Uh, the pro side would be that dogs are very plentiful and successful in North America, while Canis lupus, the gray wolf, is, is uh, near extinction in many areas. And so the dog benefited by genetic enhancement being close to humans. But dogs also have lots of genetic defects, uh, uh, genetic defects because of all the inbreeding that took place over thousands of years. What are your thoughts? Well, I think that there are, uh, there are certainly there are inbreeding issues, especially with certain breeds. Uh, there are, I believe, that uh, most of, uh, that many dogs are, have a longer life expectancy, certainly, than uh, the gray wolf in the wild. But uh, yes, there will be consequences of that sort, and especially when you have the kind with sort of crude, uh, the kinds of, of, of um, selective tools that one uses and uh, in natural breeding, you're much more likely to get these sorts of issues because you have large clusters of genes that are exchanged and you have inbreeding problems and such. I would imagine that those will be uh, less significant when this occurs in humans uh, for several reasons. One is that the advances in medical technology are such that they mute some of the problems that might otherwise be significant. For example, the most obvious, or a very obvious example of that is uh, eyesight, where virtually everyone over the age of 40 uh, requires glasses, and we wouldn't be very functional without them. And yet we don't even look at it as a disability. And there are a variety of other kinds of uh, what would have been even fatal diseases that no longer are such. And in fact, that has had a huge impact in the uh, spread of various mutations that would otherwise be uh, very, very debilitating because we survive longer. We reach reproductive age when otherwise we might not have. Uh, so I see that as one reason that these are less likely, that they're unlikely to be things that we can't deal with. And another is that we're really understanding uh, human biology and life in general in a much more profound and nuanced way. And also look at our dinner table. Believe it or not, much of the foods we eat for dinner have been genetically enhanced by humans over thousands of years. But if you look at corn, even though corn was uh, domesticated by Native Americans, corn cannot exist without humans. The kernels don't fall off uh, without human intervention. Uh, therefore, corn is very plentiful, very shiny, uh, very tasteful, but it is totally dependent upon humans for reproduction. Without humans, uh, corn cannot exist. Uh, what are your thoughts? Well, my thoughts are, are several in that. First of all, Virtually all of the foods that we eat are the product of uh, human breeding in one way or another. So the idea that there are natural foods is uh, just uh, demonstrates an ignorance of the whole process by which all of the grains and staples that we um, eat are how they evolved. I mean, a potato was a little uh, uh, 
thing the size of a pea, for example, and the same thing as you mentioned with corn. Uh, the second is that I agree that we're likely uh, not to be able to survive in, a hu- in, in an environment that it does not have technology. And in fact, that's already the case, not just because of our biology, but look at our population. We couldn't support the human population without uh, the kinds of uh, high-technology agriculture and such that we have. And so the population is way beyond the level that it could, uh, uh, we could live uh, in a subsistence kind of a lifestyle. Many individuals who really who give birth to children, and they wouldn't be able to do that outside of a hospital. I mean, you, you have all sorts of interventions, which those interventions make it more likely that uh, such problems will be more significant, not less, in the future. So I think that we are definitely uh, increasingly adapted to a high-technology, human-centered sort of an environment, and the idea that we're going to go back in some way or would even have the possibility of doing that, I think is uh, there is no, no real possibility that that could occur. Okay, so we talked about the past where everything, including our dinner table, uh, dogs, cats, uh, horses, sheep, all of them have been tinkered with uh, and enhanced to some degree by human intervention. Now let's talk about today. Uh, We see science fiction movies where uh, life forms can be manipulated at will, but isn't it true that gene therapy, the simplest example of just fixing a broken gene, that that's really in its infancy and that there's really only one disease that can be so-called cured using gene therapy, and that's called uh, the bubble boy syndrome, or SCIDS. So aren't we at the beginning of this technology? Uh, Very much at the beginning. I would differ uh, sharply, though, with your assessment that that is the simplest of of the sort of interventions that one can think of. It's actually probably the most difficult. And the reason for that is that you, if you're going to try and do genetic interventions, you have to find a mechanism for putting in place a, uh, a significant segment of DNA uh, and the control mechanisms to determine when that would be turned off appro- on and off appropriately, and then get them into individual cells in an already existing body. That's a very, very difficult and challenging process, and, and an unnatural one in many ways, in the sense that the the much easier and simpler way to do that would be to uh, select or alter the genes that are in the first cell of the human embryo, and then they would be copied into every cell in the human body uh, along with, uh, with structures that would turn them on and off, orchestrate their activity uh, at the appropriate times and places. And that's kind of the way our genetics works naturally, in that we have every cell in the body has the same genes. It's just that different clusters of them are turned on in, say, bone than in uh, skin or in neural tissue. And so these are the kinds of things that are possible and are are much, much simpler than genetic interventions, which uh, I think uh, Jim Watson said that if you you waited to do germline intervention, which are those that are to embryos and uh, single cells, that if you waited for somatic engineering, the kinds of uh, genetic interventions that are done today, to be successful, you'd wait until uh, the sun froze over. Okay. Well, if you are Jewish, you have to worry about Tay-Sachs. If you are 
uh, Caucasian, you have to worry about cystic fibrosis. And in fact, in Brooklyn, there's even a group of um, Orthodox Jews who get screened, and if the embryos, uh, via uh, implantation, uh, if the embryos carry um, the, the bad gene, you can reject them. And in that way, they hope to literally eliminate that gene from that population. So what are, the, what are some other ways in which people today can actually begin to tinker with the genetics of their children? Well, you mentioned it right there with actually uh, uh, creating a number of embryos during the process of in vitro fertilization, where you take a, a, an egg and a sperm and uh, fertilize them in a Petri dish, allow them to come together in a Petri dish, and then you wait until they grow up to, say, the six or eight cell stage. You remove one of the cells, which isn't damaging to the embryo, and then you run a genetic test on that cell, and depending on the results, you decide whether to use or discard that embryo. That's done to avoid cystic fibrosis, to avoid Tay-Sachs. In fact, in the Jewish community, there are uh, people have genetic tests and use that as uh, to avoid marriages that would likely lead to uh, children with such problems, and that's a common thing as well. So the idea of genetic screening is the easiest way that you could uh, exploit the possibilities of these new technologies, because there you're not actually altering or changing, you're just reading out the genetic code, which is something that we can already do, although we'll be able to do it much more easily and rapidly and in more sophisticated fashions and then making a decision based on that. So there is uh, no risk involved, essentially, or very, very limited risks involved. And that, I think, is going to be the first application that is widespread, and that will happen relatively quickly. Okay, now let's look at maybe a 20-year timeline, and then we'll look into the next 100, 200 years, which, of course, borders on science fiction. Mm -hmm. But let's take a look at a 20-year timeline. What kinds of therapies, what kinds of procedures are going to be available within that time frame, a 20-year time frame? So in a 20-year time frame, I think there will be some sort of niche technologies which gain a lot of publicity today but aren't really very interesting, things like human cloning and such, which I think, even if broadly available, would only be used by very small numbers of people. The kinds of genetic engineering technologies, which I've discussed at length, uh, where you'd actually go in and alter chromosomes and add clusters of genes and such, uh, those almost certainly will not be used other than possibly in animals, uh, and they're already being used a little bit in animals uh, within that time frame. The kinds of things that will be dramatically more sophisticated and will be widely available within a 20-year time frame will be the genetic screening technology that we just discussed. And there, one will be not only screening for genetic diseases, which uh, is already done today for a few genetic diseases. It'll be done much more broadly and in a much more nuanced fashion. But I believe that there will be uh, choices being made based on uh, matters of temperament and personality and uh, predispositions that involve risk for certain, uh, for manic depression or other kinds of disorders that... Uh, you know, are only on the borderline viewed as diseases. And so there will be um, basically parents, prospective parents, will be exerting choices over the genetic makeup of their children based on their individual preferences and uh, wants. 
Okay, let's talk about that now, because let's look at a 20-plus year horizon, 20-50-year horizon, let's say, when some of the genes for attractiveness are isolated. Uh, there was a blip in the media the other day stating that uh, shoppers uh, spend more time taking care of their attractive children uh, than they do with their unattractive children. And parents, of course, spend thousands of dollars on violin lessons for their children and SAT lessons to enhance their children to get into college to increase their reproductive success. But wouldn't parents therefore be hardwired not just to give violin lessons, but to actually make the children more attractive? Well, uh, almost certainly to pick certain traits. I think one gets into uh, surprising choices that people would make that uh, some of us would not consider to be enhancement, but would be so in the eyes of the parents. And what I'm referring to is, for example, that deaf parents have already, uh, I've spoken to deaf parents who have said, they're interacted with deaf parents who have said that they would use such technology to ensure that their children, not that their children were hearing, but that they were deaf so that they could fit better into the environment that they could, uh, into the, the deaf culture, that they would be able to interact more with them as, as parents. So the choices that people make are very interesting. Some people would like to enhance uh, one's IQ and intelligence. Another would be interested in aspects of physicality or in appearance. And I think there will be very, very, very diverse choices that are being made, but yes, Parents will definitely want to make those choices and, in fact, will make those choices. And, in fact, uh, if you just found out that the Joneses next door had their kid genetically enhanced and your kid, who is not enhanced, has to compete against the Joneses' kid, uh, won't you, therefore, make a beeline to the nearest genetic enhancer uh, so that your kid is competitive against your uh, next-door neighbor's kid? Yeah, maybe. It's sort of interesting, though, because... The difficulty of you applying the technology will be directly proportional to the amount of enhancement you, that one exerts. So to actually create, for instance, super children in one way or another, no matter what the trait is, will be very complex and very slow in coming, whereas the uh, possibility of improving a some vector of performance from below average to average or average to slightly above average will be much, much easier. So there'll tend to be a leveling that will occur when these technologies are applied. I think of it as like giving parents the ability to create uh, a virtual projection of some of the aspects of that would likely be manifested in future children, and then to make choices among those virtual siblings that they would, uh, that would be represented by embryos. So yes, it could create significant enhancements in various dimensions uh, and do it very, very rapidly if, in fact, for example, what we know about the uh, genetic basis for IQ, which is uh, not insignificant at all, certainly probably over, over 50% from uh, twin studies, uh, identical twins reared together and reared apart, a whole variety of studies in that realm. If, if you could identify the many genes that are involved in that and make choices based on them, uh, you would, within a single generation, parents would probably increase the IQ of their kids by perhaps 20 points when they, uh, if that was what really interested them. So that's a huge step in a very short period of time. And I think that 
there would be movement in many, many different directions, so that there would sort of be a radiation of human form. Okay, well, let's take these one at a time, because you raise a whole bunch of things. Uh, <laughs> strength. Uh, just recently, scientists have been studying a gene which makes a mouse muscle-bound. Uh, the mouse has tremendous muscles. Uh, they call that mouse a mighty mouse in the media. And that gene or a counterpart of that has been found in children now, human children. And the question is, what does it mean to be an Olympic uh, sportsman or sportswoman? What does it mean to be a, a Yankee home run batter if it's all just a question of genetic, enhan genetic enhancement? Well, I think it's, a, it's going to be... Uh a real interplay of many, many factors, of which genetics will be a very, very important one and a requirement, essentially, that, I mean, if you, you know relatively early on today whether you have the genes, whether you have the, the physique, that you're going to be competitive at a world-class level, that you even have the hope of being competitive in various sports. And you'd have to combine with that an incredible to drive and an environment that nurtured that, uh, I would say that if you had uh, 50 clones of Michael Jordan, that not all of them would be superstars, uh, that there would be other factors that would intervene to avoid those, you know, to interfere with that or to prevent that in one way or another. But, uh, yeah, so what does it mean to be a superstar? Well, today, it used to be that there were amateur athletes, and now today for somebody to perform at a world-class status, uh, in a sort of a world-class status, you have to basically be devoted to a sport from a very, very early age and make it uh, your career. And that certainly wasn't the case. So the sense of what it takes to be a professional at a world-class level will uh, just continue to be refined. And I suspect that you may eventually reach the point where it's like having a race car, where you know there's a whole team, uh, including physicians and others, that are the support uh, sort of group for any world-class athlete. Okay, well, we have uh, numerous steroid scandals, and uh, we believe in a meritocracy that you should work at being a great athlete, not simply take a steroid and hit the ball out of the ballpark. And yet here we're talking about something even greater than steroids, actually literally changing the genetic structure of your muscle and uh, bones, right? So won't that also create a scandal? Well, I think it... it it will create a change in the way people look at these things because as it is right now there are the idea that there is going to be sort of a natural uh, olympics in some way or that there are sports where people do not use various aids of one sort or another uh, you know that's really as we've seen in baseball that's really not the case and the idea that we're going to be able to enforce those things is very unlikely as well because the monetary rewards are too significant for success. And so it's just a constant battle between those who are trying to uh, enhance in one way or another through genetic, through uh, drugs, through all sorts of things, and those who are trying to discover those. And actually, there are certain incentives for the, uh, the sports organizations to see increased performance. It'll be interesting to see what will happen to the perceptions of the game if, in fact, performance settles back and isn't as strong as when, uh, you know, new home run records were being set. Uh, so I think that as we move ahead, that it's going to become 
increasingly accepted that we manipulate our bodies in a variety of ways using interventions. What we will want, not want to see is ways in which these are dangerous interventions. But I would like to say, what are you going to do if, in fact, there is something that you could take that would increase performance or increase one's memory or increase any aspect of one's functioning and, in fact, is not dangerous, where there are no side effects that are adverse. It's sort of a recreational drug of sorts, but one without the side effects of many of the ones today. Are we ourselves not going to want to take those? I mean, remember, we are... We take things to put ourselves to sleep, to wake ourselves up, to <laughs> uh, kill pain, to, you know, we intervene in all sorts of ways with legal pharmaceuticals. So the line between uh, what is a pharmaceutical and what is an illicit drug is going to be an, uh, an increasingly arbitrary one, and those discussions will seem a little bit surreal as we move forward. Well, I'm afraid that's it for exploration. Once again, our first special guest in the first part of our program was Dana McKenzie, author of the book The Big Splat, about the origin of the moon. And in the second half of exploration, we brought on Dr. Gregory Stock of UCLA talking about redesigning humans. And if you want a copy of today's program, call the Pacifica Program Service at 1-800-735-0230. That's one 800 735-0230 for a copy of today's program. And be sure to dial into my website. It's www.mkaku.org, M-K-A-K-U.org. Once again, this is Dr. Michio Kaku, professor of physics, inviting you to join us every week for a discussion of science and its impact on society. Good day. <music>